Father, this morning, um, Lord, it is uh, such, a, such a high privilege and a joy that we have to be, um, Lord, the recipients of your new covenant, uh, to have this truth before us and to be ministers uh, of this truth. And I pray that um, this morning as we, as we look into your word, um, that Christ would be exalted, um, that we would catch some of the heart that was um, in the Apostle Paul um, for the ministry, for the church. Uh, Lord, just open your words to us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so go ahead if you have not already and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians belongs to the um, epistles genre of the Bible. It is a letter. Um, and so some basic questions that we should be asking whenever studying any of the letters of the New Testament are who wrote it, who was it written to, what prompted the letter to be written, and what is its message, its content. So to answer the first question, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Um, there really has never been any dispute about his authorship Second Corinthians was written during Paul's third missionary journey while at Macedonia, which is um, modern-day Albania and northern Greece. The letter is addressed to the believers in Corinth, the southern part of Greece. So Paul, as a pioneering church planter, he took these three major missionary journeys— in which he traveled basically from one edge of the Roman Empire to the other, stopping along the way in major cities, wherever the Spirit would lead, for months or even years at a time, to preach the gospel, to evangelize and to disciple new believers. And then once a church had been established, he would then move on to the next city, or he was thrown out and had no choice. Um, However, after Paul would leave these new church plants, his shepherding ministry would continue with them through his letters. And today we have so many forms of communication available to us between email and text and Skype and FaceSnap and Chatbook and all those. Um, the value of a letter could be lost on us a little bit, but consider what it would have meant in Paul's day for these churches to receive a letter delivered across an ocean by one of Paul's trusted fellow servants. This was how he stayed connected with them. This is how they were able to continue to benefit from his shepherding ministry. He cared deeply for these churches and for their spiritual health. He often refers to them as his children in the faith. So if these churches planted by Paul were his children, the church at Corinth was like the middle kid. I can relate. Sorry, middle kids. They were the black sheep, the rebellious problem child that takes up most of their parents' attention and keeps them awake at night with worry. <laughs> so Paul's relationship with the Corinthian believers was often painful 
and as well, deeply rewarding. This letter to the Corinthians, um, almost more than any of Paul's other writings, is um, just intensely emotional. He uses language uh, that he, you don't find in, in other books. And he opens up really personally to them, unlike any other of his epistles. So to give us some, some background of his relationship with this church, he first came to Corinth on his second missionary journey in A.D. 50 or 51, where he befriended a Jewish couple, Priscilla and Aquila. He lived with them and supported himself while at Corinth by working with them as a tent maker in their business. And every Sabbath, we're told that he was in the synagogue teaching the gospel to the people, persuading them. And then God told Paul, while he was there through a vision, that he was to remain for a longer time in Corinth to keep evangelizing, to keep speaking the truth, because God said, I have many in this city who are my people. So after a year and a half of ministry, a great many Gentiles and some Jews had come to the faith. And when Paul left, there was this large church of brand new believers that had been established that he left behind. So from there, he travels across the Mediterranean to Ephesus in Asia or modern-day Turkey. And so while he's there, he begins to hear these troubling reports of some serious moral problems that have come up in this church at Corinth. To address the problems, he writes the letter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago of 1 Corinthians, and it was delivered by his trusted fellow servant, Timothy, to the church at Corinth who was to report back to Paul on their response. So the news that Paul got from Timothy was not good. And see, now, in addition to these serious issues of continued sexual immorality within the church, there was a new and more insidious problem. Since Paul had left, this new church has been infiltrated by these so-called super-apostles, and they were selling a false gospel. Paul calls them peddlers of God's word. They were Judaizers. His arch nemesis seemed like wherever he went, there they were, um, teaching a works-based salvation, polluting the church with false doctrine, and seeking to undermine Paul's authority. The church at Corinth was at risk because of their presence and their teaching. So Paul, he gets this bad news, and he drops everything and hops the first boat back to Corinth to deal with these matters personally. Now this trip, this disastrous second visit, is what 2 Corinthians refers to as the painful visit. See, by the time Paul made it back, much damage had already been done to his reputation among the Corinthian believers by these slanderous false apostles. And he was met there by many in the church, not with humility and repentance, but with hostility and rebellion and dissension. The fallout from this second visit really culminated with one particular church member accusing Paul to his face in front of the entire congregation of the things that the slanderers were saying about him behind his back. And the church leadership did nothing, which Paul found especially painful. So as I'm sure you can imagine, all of this caused him great heartache. And he left Corinth at that time with this relationship in tatters. 
So he goes again from there to Ephesus, and from Ephesus he writes a third letter that is lost to us, that we only know of as the severe letter. It was a searing call to repentance. Titus delivered this letter, and Paul waited and waited and waited to hear about the Corinthians' response to it. Finally, Titus returns, bringing back news to Paul. And it's good news that revival has broken out in this church in response to his letter, and that the majority of the church members are repenting of their rebellion, and they are zealous to to have the relationship with Paul restored. So in response to this news, Paul, he had earnestly hoped to hear, writes the letter that we have in front of us, 2 Corinthians, or really 4 Corinthians. The themes of his letter are restoration, reconciliation, and a final refutation of what the false apostles were teaching. So let's look in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. We read um, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In these opening verses, we see the first message that Paul has for this church. And it is a message of comfort. He has wounded them with severe confrontation. And now that they're finally repenting, he is binding up those wounds with the comfort from the Father. I think it's important that we consider here the etymology of this word that Paul uses for comfort. See, in our subculture, the word comfort tends to carry some really kind of unhelpful connotations. Um, We may think of it as perhaps the absence of hardship or being made to feel better, or um, to feel good. We speak of comfort in light, like with warm, fuzzy thoughts. But these concepts fall pretty far short of the meaning that Paul wants to convey through the word that he uses here and that is translated comfort for us. In the original Greek language, it is always some form of this word parakleseos, meaning uh, para, which is with or alongside of, and klesis, or klesis, which is called to one side, or to call to. It carries the idea of earnest encouragement, exhortation, and help, the application of truth, and the building up of weak faith. I want us to notice, too, how Paul says that our God, he is the God of all comfort, that in our pain, in our suffering, We sometimes go to many different sources for relief. But whatever comfort we may find outside of God, according to Paul, is a counterfeit comfort. He and he alone is where we find true encouragement. So what Paul is saying here is is not that God is a source of comfort. 
He is the source. He has it all. He has all the comfort. And through Christ, there is an abundance of it available to us. Now, in verse 7, it's really interesting. Let's read. Paul says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul is indicating in this verse that one of the reasons the Corinthians are in such need of comfort is that they are now experiencing the same kind of painful repercussions that Paul and his mission team faced wherever they went because of the gospel, because of their obedience to Christ. This is actually good news because it shows that the Corinthians are finally in the fight. They are finally feeling the heat of opposition as they are repenting and coming into submission to Christ. As the saying goes, you will not feel the force of the current you're in until you turn to swim against it. So, um, this is encouraging. This is comforting. Then in chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4, um, Paul makes a clarification for the Corinthians about um, a change of plans and a delay in his promised upcoming visit to them. So, uh, moving on, chapter, in chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, you can go ahead and turn there. Paul is dealing again with a matter of church discipline. In 1 Corinthians, a couple of weeks ago, we saw how Paul gave um, instructions to the church on how they to, were to initiate church discipline against an unrepentant member. And then here in, in 2 Corinthians... He's giving them instructions on how they are to move forward in healing that relationship now that a a church member under discipline is repenting. Um, Let's look at, let's see, verse verse 7 through 8 of chapter 2. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. <clears throat> and then in, down in verse 11, let's continue reading, uh, or verse 10, verse 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul is instructing the church with regard to this repenting believer who has been under discipline. He's saying, restore that relationship. Bring reconciliation now. Forgive. And he gives a warning about what the consequences would be for failing to forgive and be reconciled. In verse 11 where he talks about these designs, these plans of Satan, it shows us that Satan actually does plan to use internal division, resentment, and bitterness to destroy the church from the inside out. These are some of his favorite weapons to use. And Paul is saying that forgiveness, reconciliation, is how we can outmaneuver and counter that attack against the church. We are not ignorant of his designs. So in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, Paul shares with the church the anxiety that he has felt over their spiritual health. 
um, as he waited to hear back from Titus. Um, and then chapter 3, if you turn over there, chapter 3 through chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, these, these chapters read to me almost like a, uh, a missionary support letter. Paul is reporting back to the Corinthians on the work that he and his team have been doing to spread the gospel around the world. He's kind of giving them a window into his world, into his heart for the ministry. Um, and in chapter 3, the, the writing is just amazing. It is incredible what is done here. And not to give glory to Paul, but to, to give evidence to the fact that this is an inspired book. You see him, he wants to draw a sharp contrast between the old covenant and these false apostles, these false teachers who are advocating adherence to this old covenant. And he's contrasting it with this surpassing glory and value and worth of the new covenant that's been delivered to the Corinthians through Paul's teaching. And what he does here is just unbelievable. Um, First, he references the fact that these false apostles, these false teachers had showed up with their letters of recommendation. They had their resumes in hand and they're like, look, this is why you need to pay us to teach you Bible doctrine. And uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul then uh, goes on to symbolically equate these letters produced by the false apostles, with the letter written on stone tablets, the letter of the law that they were advocating for. He identifies those false apostles with this old covenant. And what he's saying here is that the, the old covenant and its power to save is as lifeless as those stone tablets that it was written on. And then by contrast, the new covenant, in its power to save, is alive like the beating hearts of these believers. He continues on with this theme of the surpassing worth of the new covenant versus the old, and then he pivots to a new allegory. One of the most amazing things that I think you can see throughout Paul's inspired writings is how, uh, as a student of the Old Testament, he will seamlessly take these Old Testament narratives and he'll use them to illustrate and to allegorize new covenant doctrines. So let's look at verses 7 through 18 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And then um, skip down to verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What Paul is saying here is that as as Moses was made a minister of this old covenant, we have been made ministers of this new covenant. And what we have is better. It's so much more glorious He's encouraging these Corinthians, don't go back. Don't listen to these false apostles. Don't be fooled by this gospel of works. The old covenant is death. The new covenant is life and light. So in chapter 4, he continues on with this theme of the light of the gospel, the glory of the gospel in the new covenant. Let's look at chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2, and then 5 and 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's making it very clear that while these false teachers are placing such value on the outward appearance, The true value is in the message. It is in the gospel. It is in the new covenant of which we are made ministers and um, ambassadors. Then in verse 7 through 18, he says, starting in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. These false apostles One of the accusations that they laid against Paul was that his words may be strong, but his appearance is weak. I mean, look at the guy. He's falling apart. And look at us. I mean, we've got our letters of recommendation, and we're in style, and we're relevant. And and Paul says he wants to make it clear, our outward appearance is of no significance because we are nothing but clay pots disposable in and of ourselves worthless but it is the treasure we hold that is itself priceless. It is not about us. It is about the gospel. So then in chapter 5, Paul continues on with this this look into his heart for, for the ministry, for the gospel. And he talks about the ministry of reconciliation. So in verse 18 of chapter 5, if you turn there, 
He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul knows that among the the readers and the hearers of this letter, there are those who have believed, and there are those who have not yet believed. And so to the one, he makes this appeal, this passionate plea of be reconciled. And to those of us who have believed, he's inviting us to take part in this glorious ministry that we've been given of reconciliation, of um, sharing this glorious gospel. And then in chapter 6, verses 12... Through 13. Well, we won't read it there, but he, he basically says, we are wide open. We're holding nothing back. There is nothing that we have, have allowed to come between us and you. So open your hearts and receive this message. Be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled with us. So with everything that Paul has done here to, to basically open a window into his world and say, here's what ministry really looks like. Here's what it is about. Here is what it costs. He is both inspiring these church members and exposing the total hypocrisy of the false apostles with their eloquent words and their stylish appearances. So then in chapters 8 through 9, we won't have time to go into this in depth, um, but Paul discusses an opportunity that the believers in Corinth have to give to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. Um, the, the believers in Jerusalem were very poor, and churches in Macedonia, in Ephesus, all over the Roman Empire were taking up collections to send for their relief. And Paul is inviting the Corinthian believers to, to take part in that, to participate. Um, and if you have a chance to go back and read these chapters, it is a really powerful message on the, the worship that giving to the needs of the saints is and the privilege that it is. Um, so then in chapter 10, chapter 10 through 12, Paul vehemently defends his ministry against these false apostles. And it's really entertaining reading because right here the gloves come off. These guys get absolutely obliterated. He leaves them nowhere to hide and he calls them out for the agents of Satan that they are for bringing this church under the burden of the law again and teaching this false gospel. Now in these chapters... um, you can see kind of this emotion coming through in Paul's writings. He becomes increasingly personal 
sharing with this church details about his life, about the, the, the blessings that he's experienced, and about the burdens that he carries that he has never shared before in any other letter. He's holding absolutely nothing back. He's um, disclosing himself to them and seeking to, to have this relationship restored. Um, let's look at in verse, let's see. Well, I'll just, I'll just read. I'm having a little trouble finding it. But um, he shares with them about this thorn in his side given to him by God, this burden that he carries. And he says, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. By sharing this with these, these believers, he is... Um, he's putting to rest, he's refuting these arguments made by the false apostles that it is, it is outward appearance and outward style and outward um, strength that is what is important. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 it is not in me, it is not about me, I'm going to glory in the things that make me weak because then the power of God can rest upon me. That is where the power is. Um, so he's making this, this strong argument through his personal testimony against what is being taught, the error that's being taught to these believers in Corinth. So through this depth of emotion, through this um, vulnerability that Paul shows in the letter, it kind of betrays his heart of love for the church, but even more so it shows the passion that he has for Christ, for Christ's Bride and the jealousy that he feels over protecting their spiritual health and their dedication to the Lord Jesus. Paul is about serving Christ, loving him. So then in chapter 13, um, he takes some time to begin preparing the church for his next visit, and he gives them some. Final warnings. He's saying, be ready. I'm, I'm coming and I don't want to be harsh with you. But I will if I have to. Um, so let's read starting in verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And I warn those who sinned before and all the others. I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit. That if I come again... I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. 
So he's, he's preparing them. He's saying, I want to come to you and to be able to minister, you, minister to you in love and build you up rather than tear you down. It's not Paul's wish to come back and have to wound them again. So he's encouraging them, examine yourselves, repent, see that you are in the faith so that when I come to you this third time, we can have sweet fellowship together and I can build you up in the faith. And then uh, let's read in verse 11 through 14, his final greeting. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I hope that in looking through uh, this book this morning, um, we, like the Corinthian believers, can be inspired by Paul's heart for the ministry of this new covenant and that we can seek to be reconciled with each other, um, to show one another love um, and uh, to, to just catch some of that heart that Paul showed.